0: Welcome to Episode 2 of the Clayton Castle Podcast. My name is Clayton Castle, and before I get started with this fantastic episode, I just want to take a moment to say a few words about Episode 1. You know, I said there that this was my dream. My dream was to create a podcast, to just talk to interesting and fascinating people in the greater Cincinnati area, and really learn their stories, where they came from, and how they got to where they are today. And I feel as though we accomplished that together in episode one. My dream came to fruition. I achieved that dream. And I have so many people to thank for that. Uh, First of all, I want to thank Robert Weidel. He was my guest last week, the fantastic community theater actor and director. And of course, he is Santa Claus at the Cincinnati Zoo. I want to thank him not just for agreeing to do the podcast, but being a fantastic friend and mentor throughout this past decade, and I knew as soon as I started this podcast that he was going to be guest numero uno, and so I just want to thank him again for participating in that. I also want to thank my beautiful fiance, Heather. When I said I wanted to start a podcast, she believed in me from day one, and she never let me fall short of achieving that dream. She kept pushing me and really drove me to want to do this. And so I love her so much, and I am so thankful that she is in my life. I also want to thank my family and friends and everybody who listened to the first episode. Gave me great feedback, constructive criticism, things I can do to improve the podcast. And I'm taking all of that to heart and will be tinkering with the podcast throughout this process. You know, not one podcast is going to be the same as the next. So I'm just so excited to continue this podcast and really bring a second episode into fruition and really living out my dream of being a podcast host. And with that being said, I'm so excited for this this episode and this guest. We're going to be having a frank and honest discussion about policing and race and the role that community policing can take in really closing that racial divide between the police and the community. I'll be speaking with the former police chief of the city of Middletown. He is also an author of a book called A Blue View, an uncut journal of an Ohio police chief. And he is also soon to be a candidate for city council in the city of Middletown. I'll be talking to Rodney Mutesball. That's coming up. Welcome back to the Clayton Castle Podcast. I am here with a very special guest. He served the city of Middletown for over 30 years as a police officer and then a police chief. I am here with Chief Rodney Muterspaal. Chief, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here with you, Clayton. Looking forward to it. Well, thank you.
0: And um, there are a lot. There's a lot of things I want to ask you about. A lot of things I want to talk about. Uh, First of all, you're very popular in Middletown. (laughs) Uh, We are actually recording this at Java Johnny's here on Central Avenue in Middletown. And there have just been several people come up just thanking you for your service to the city as a police chief, currently as a real estate agent and soon to be, I guess I could say it now because it's out there. You're soon to be running for city council for Mm -hmm. Middletown. So how does that feel when people just come up to you and thank you for your service?
1: It feels good. I mean, it's it's humbling, I mean, to be honest with you. I, I think the thing that you realize when you get, you know, thank yous and congratulations and like that is, is you kind of owe it to the people that worked with you and for you for years. Um, because we did a lot of good things, but you notice it's it, when I, I say we, and the department just killed it when I was there as in, in a good in a good way. And when you have that, I mean, it just breeds success for everybody. So it makes you look better than maybe what you really are. So when I get that, I always think about the people that I worked with because they were the best. And um, that's kind of how you have to look at it.
0: Yeah. You know, I've, I've watched news stories. I've listened to podcasts that you've been featured in. And I just love your story. And that's why I wanted to, to interview you. Obviously, you're friends with my fiance. Mm-hmm. You guys know yeah. each other. I met you very briefly. Yeah. At an event at the airport a few years ago, you know, let's just let's just dive right in. Okay, uh, you were the police chief from Middletown for mm-hmm. five years, six five years, five years, and but a police officer for almost thirty years. Yes, talk a little bit about your upbringing. What, were you raised here in
1: Middletown? What was mm-hmm. what was kid Rodney Meterspall like? Kid Rodney Meterspall was always in trouble. Um, <laughs> no, it was. Uh, I grew up in, in Middletown. I was actually born in Middletown, but my grandmother lived in Trenton. And so we spent a lot of times over there, lived there several times. Uh, my brother and I counted. We lived in 11 different places from, from the time we were born to the time I was uh, an adult. Um, we lived in Houston, Texas and Phoenix, Arizona. At one point, my mom and, and my stepdad were looking for work. So we moved out a couple of times and we came back here. But it's funny, you know, I've lived all over this city. I've lived in the Amanda area. I've lived on Oxford State Road, Hill Street and Crawford. Grew up there, Jackson Lane, Wyckoff. I mean, I've been everywhere. And... You know, we didn't have a lot of uh, divorced family. My mom and dad divorced when I was really little. And um, many times we just had to move back to my grandma's to make me- ends, uh, meet. So I tend to think when you grow up like that without a lot, you tend to look at things a little bit different. And I think that's why I'm a little bit more empathetic toward people that don't have a lot because I've been there. And I know what it's like. And it just I think it shapes and molds you to grow up. I think it makes you tougher. and It makes you stronger. That's for sure. Um, but, yeah, that was me growing up. I mean, I, I, unfortunately, I went to a Christian school thanks to a, a gracious donor. Uh, we certainly couldn't afford it, but I'm a Middletown Christian graduate, and I loved it there. Um, but um, that was me growing up and went off to college. And thank God he gave me some basketball skill and some size, so I got to go play in, in, in college. And then um, I, I just wanted to go to school to be a, a teacher, a math teacher in specific, and a basketball coach, and didn't end up like that. <laughs> so I ended up going to the police work. Cause some friends took the test and I took it and it's kind of the rest is history, you know?
0: You know, you talk a little bit about that in your book called the blue view, mm-hmm. the uncut journal of an Ohio police chief. And I, you know, I admitted to you before this, I did not get all the way through it before mm-hmm. we got to report, record this podcast, but you do talk about that switch from being wanting to be a school teacher to then going into the Academy. What went into that decision? What made you be like, you know, maybe this teaching thing is not right. I'm going to go into the police Academy.
1: You know, there really wasn't anything that was quick. It was one of these things. I have family that's in law enforcement. I do. I have uncles that were police officers. Um, my stepdad was a, a deputy sheriff. It was my mom's, I think, third marriage. He was a, a deputy sheriff. And I just never really liked police that much growing up. I mean, I like my, my uncles, of course, but I just wasn't a big fan. And um, different policing style back in the day. But when I was in school, I just wanted something different. I got bored easy. Um You know, I got hurt playing basketball, and I was like, you know, it's one of these things where I just want to try something different. And so I took the test on a whim. I also took the fire test just to take it. (laughs) And the police department called me back and said, hey, we want to process you. And it went from there. And and a lot of people don't know that wasn't with Middletown. I started at Butler County Sheriff's Office. I was there a year. Oh, wow. Yeah, so um, I was there a year before I went to Middletown. And so County's one who actually hired me first, and then Middletown recruited me because that's what you do in police agencies. You recruit and I left there and went to Middletown and that's how it happened. So I was still that's why my first few or four or five years on the job I didn't take it serious. Because it's nothing I really had a passion for. Right. And I didn't take it serious till I had kids. That's when I started realizing I have to do better.
0: You talk a lot about experiences in your early career where you, you didn't necessarily know what was what to do, what was mm-hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. And there have been sergeants or senior officers who've had to tell you, Don't do that. Get mm-hmm. your gun out of your hand, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. How did you react in those kind of moments
1: man I just soaked it all in um, I was kind of a goofball I always joked about everything just like I still do but in a different way but um I, I just I had some great training officers and if it wasn't for the senior officers at Middletown I probably wouldn't have achieved what I did um because when you're a young officer you do a lot of dumb things and I always tell people there's a method behind the madness and what we do isn't always right but there's a reason we do things. And if it wasn't for those senior officers kind of just guiding me and leading the way, you know, you got to take their advice. They know what they're doing. That's why they do it. did it for 20, 25 years. And it was nice as I progressed through my career, I could be one of those senior officers to help younger people because they do need that. They need that guidance because the academy surely doesn't provide that guidance. I can tell you that.
0: Do you see that the same mistakes that you made as a young officer? Do you see young officers making those same mistakes today? Because surely in 25, 30 years policing has had to have changed it's it can't be the same yeah. you know just everything has changed in 30 yeah. years um what what do you see in the young officers and what do you see do you see yourself in them at all
1: oh i do and i used to i used to laugh i'd go into the squad room and you know i was 49 50 years old and there'd be 22 year old officers in there and some of the stuff they say i just kind of grin because it's it kind of uh rings a bell of what it used to be like for me. I used to say the same dumb things, do the same dumb things, not take things serious. And they, they do it now. And but that's part of growth and maturity in anything. Um, I can tell you that policing now is 10 times harder than it's ever been. You know, when I was coming on, and a lot of people say this and it's true, like, well, all this, you know, this stuff going on. Well, back then there was no video cameras on you. There was no GPS on your cruiser. There was no body mics. There was no body cams. Everything you say now is scrutinized, and the worst part about it is on social media. If you say something in your job and it's on it's on recording, it could be out on Twitter in a matter of minutes. And when you have that, you know it blows up nationally, it goes viral. We never had that when I was a young officer. It might be in the journal three days later, but the only one who ever read it was people in Middletown. Well, now if you say something, gonna mean California is going to read it and they're going to blow it up on you. So the difference is just incredible, incredible.
0: And I think that's something that you see in society. The difference is, you know, I think Will Smith had a great quote about racism. He said, racism's not getting worse. It's getting filmed. It's getting exposed. It's getting exposed. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and when you talk about policing and race in 2021, 2020, you know, especially with the whole George Floyd situation, I was amazed when I was reading your book. Race is not new in policing. <laughs> the issues with race, it goes back to. You talk about Rodney King mm-hmm. in 1992. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like to be a police officer when that happened?
1: It, it blew our mind because, you know, I, I remember I was, it was probably my second year on the job, and I was working I was on 3-11 to 11 shift, second shift. And um, this event happened, and it was all over the news. And, you know, it was in Los Angeles, so we didn't think anything about it. Eh, it's L.A., you know, what they did to this guy was wrong, but it's not here. And uh, literally within two days, it affected us directly people that were are supporters of ours in the past, we always got along with when we drive down the street, they'd be glaring at us or they would be doing the, I always joke and call it the Rodney King dance because they literally would lay on the ground and act like you're getting beat by cops and filming it and just look at us and spit and stuff. And I was like, man, you know, literally two days ago you were waving at us. It was just a weird time. And it, it's amazing how something can happen 3000 miles away can affect you here in little Middletown, Ohio. And, so that was my first experience with really people not liking the police. Because when I came on, everybody was really pro police. It seemed like, but that just kind of uh, it, it took a year for, to get over that. It changed it. And so that, with George Floyd, you're seeing the same thing now, where it's even ten times worse. You know, so um, it was just it, it can really affect you. You know, it's one of the few professions that'll happen like that.
0: I'm glad you mentioned that these protests are happening everywhere because. I think one of the most notable cases of a small town protest happened down in Bethel, Ohio, Mm -hmm. last summer, where there was that big clash. And um, Mm -hmm. it's just amazing how these um, these effects of racism Mm -hmm. can be felt everywhere when, Mm -hmm. like you said, it's not it's not happening in Cincinnati. It's happening in Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. It's not happening in Middletown. It's happening in L.A., Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Um, but it affects everyone. How? What's it like to be a police officer in that situation? Do you feel as though, do police officers feel as though there's a target on their back?
1: Absolutely. And I can tell you that's going on right now. You can be the best police officer in the world. You could be a guy that, or a girl that just, um, achieves greatness in your job and you do everything you can to help somebody. And, you know, everything by the book, everything policy wise, you do right in one incident can change that, um, you know, I can tell you now officers are afraid to get out of their car sometimes to not afraid, you know, mentally, but they're afraid if I get out of the car, if I have to shoot somebody or tase somebody, am I going to be on the news? Am I going to be next? There's going to be an article about me in tomorrow's um, online media. Um, and that's a definite, you know, it's, it's definitely makes your job harder to do, because even if you want to do the right thing, you can still do the right thing and get ostracized in this job like like nothing else. And uh, like the taser, the Columbus shooting. I'm going to tell you right now. I've been in that situation a hundred times, okay? The cop gets out of the car, he sees two people fighting. Um, this girl's got a knife. She sees the officer and she still attempts to stab this girl. Now, if somebody's attempting to stab somebody, when there's a police officer standing right there, they're not in the right frame of mind. Either their anger's off the hook or whatever. But people were comparing comparing that to George Floyd. They're not even comparable. George Floyd, you had an officer to me, it was a character. Issue. This guy had evil in his heart for whatever reason. It wasn't a training issue. It was a character issue. This incident. This kid. This guy had a split second to make a decision, with eight people out there, and he's by himself. And he sees a girl getting stabbed. You have to do something. I always hear, well, he should have tased. Well, it's not that easy. I've tased people, you know, maybe two hundred times. Half the time, it doesn't work. It's a non-lethal weapon. If it hits the wrong spot or you miss. So if he misses her. If he hits her in the leg and this girl still gets stabbed and dies, what are they going to say about this officer? He didn't do enough. So he's damned if he does, do damned if he don't, no matter what happens. so But those two instances, I mean, that's those officers feel that. Every time they get out of the car now, they're thinking, am I going to have to do this? Am I going to be the next one all over social media? And it it worries them. I get that.
0: Does that lead to some sort of complacency in the police force? And what I mean by that is, are police not making the normal stops that they might because they're afraid an incident like that might happen where they might have a target on the back? Maybe not, maybe letting, you know, a speeder go every mm-hmm. once in a while. Are they not taking their, are they basically taking the minimum calls now that they can?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's, I don't, I'm not citing any study, any empirical evidence, but I'm telling you from cops that I know and I talk to, most of them said, hey, I'll sit in a parking lot until I get sent to a call because and not everybody but they're just like i just don't want to be next and their whole thing is if i do even if i do everything right i'm still going to get killed in the media and when that happens and i'm not saying that's true but that's their perception it doesn't mean it's true but their perception is that so you know i don't have an answer for that um i just tell them when they ask me about it or tell me i said look man just keep your keep your body mic on you know do everything by the book and, and you're going to be all fine. And, and, and you know that's that's kind of an empty promise but. What are you supposed to say in that situation? Because even if you do it right, you're going to be. I talk about, again, this Columbus officer, you know, right after that happens, LeBron James is one of those globally famous people in, in history. He tweets a picture of this cop's face and puts accountability above it. Now, he got blasted so bad he had to take it down. But the point is, if LeBron James is doing that to this officer, that poor officer mentally, what do you think he went through when he saw that? And, and he had no choice. If he doesn't do something, this girl, this girl dies. And he—that's he, how I look at it. He didn't kill somebody; he saved a life. Um, so my point is: so if that happens with a guy, with any police officer, and LeBron reaches out and does that, that's what people see, and they're like, "Man, I don't want that to be me." And I get it.
0: And you know, you and I talked about this a little bit before we started. Was I come from? I come from Cincinnati, a very liberal city. Mm-hmm. Um, I consider myself a part. Well, not a part of, but I support the Black Lives Matter movement Mm -hmm. and I, you know, I see this, but on the other hand, my, my, like you said, you had family members who are Mm -hmm. cops. My father's a cop. His father was a cop. I believe his father was a cop. So we, I come from a line of cops and so I can also differentiate situations. Mm -hmm. Sure. Do you think we would not have as much conversation about this if people took it by a situation by situation basis, as opposed to you know, a cop shoots someone dead, mm-hmm. he's racist. Yeah,
1: I, I think you're right. I, I think if there was being able to tell the, the difference on those, to view both things with facts instead of just jumping to conclusions. and Because what we do is, is a lot of times when people come out, it's based on emotion. They're, they're not looking at facts, looking at emotions. That's why you have a trial or that's why you have an investigation because those don't have emotions in it. They have facts. Um, but I think you're right. I think that that's the problem is, People can't separate the two in today's world. And, you know, I'm a big fan of the media. I have so many friends in the media, television, radio, print, whatever. So, you know, I, I still give media a hard time sometimes, just like media gives police a hard time. I, and I can tell my friends in the media, they're like, well, that's not fair. I said, well, I've been treated pretty badly as a police chief when it wasn't fair either. It's part of the business, and you just suck it up and you go. But I have friends in the media, and I said, look, when, when when something's put out there, like like I tell a story, um, I, there was a, radio st- or a TV station in Cincinnati, Channel 9, I did an article about drug usage in Middletown, and how what we're doing to fix it, and you know what the headline Channel Nine was that they put in the morning on TV? Police chief on drugs and had my picture. So if you saw that and you just were flipping through the channels, what would you think? You're I, on drugs. I was on drugs. Yeah. And our judge in Middletown, he he took a picture of it and he sent it to me. That's how I knew. And when I reached out to Channel Nine, I'm like, "What are you doing?" And I said, that and they're just like, "Well, you know, just you're reading that the wrong way." I said, "There's not one person in Middletown who read that the way you thought it should have been read." It had my picture, police chief on, and it looked like Rodney Muter's balls on drugs. And I said, I know that's not the story, but that's what the headline was. And so there are reasons why people see that stuff and they can't differentiate between two. They just look at it and say it is what it is. And a lot of that is the media, just like, you know, and I've often said, when we do dumb things, we should be called out on it. But I think everybody should be called out on dumb things, not just certain professions. So. And,
0: and as a
1: former journalist, now yes.
0: I I know exactly what you mean mm-hmm. because that I mean headline writing, mm-hmm. that's journalism one hundred and one. It is, you know, mm-hmm. and so the yeah you're right. If I had read that headline, that would say Rodney Mutersbaugh is doing crack cocaine somewhere <laughs> in his office, in, in his all in his office <laughs> at the city of Middletown. Uh, what I want to ask you is. Cincinnati police, after the Timothy Thomas situation, mm-hmm. and then a little bit after the Sam DuBose situation, even though that was University of Cincinnati, yeah. they put a big emphasis on community policing, mm-hmm. be, having officers out in the community yeah. uh, to kind of close that racial divide. What, is your, what are your thoughts on you know, getting officers out in the community, really interacting with the community?
1: Well, anybody who knows me or been around town knows that was my number one thing, was transparency and community. Police chiefs around the country, they make a huge mistake on this. Community policing is not an assignment. I get so tired when, when police chiefs say, Oh, we have people assigned to community policing. It's okay to have a division of community policing because they're free. They don't take everyday calls, they just go out and do, solve community problems. But community policing is a philosophy, it's a way of policing. It's not an assignment. You can't have a two person community policing team and say, Oh, we have community policing. No. That involves every member in your department, whether it's somebody in the records division, whether it's dispatch, whether it's a police officer. All that means is, look, you're going to go above and beyond to do anything you can to solve people's problems. Policing is problem solving, man. That's all it is. It's nothing. It's not just enforcing laws. It's problem solving. You do that by building a philosophy. Look, our goal and our job is to help people solve their problems. It's not to go out and write tickets. It's not to make arrests. It's to solve problems. And that's why I always pushed in Middletown was that, and you know, and, and it worked. It succeeded. Um, the current chief Dave Burke he does a really good job, and he has community policing officers, and they do a good job. But he also believes in a, a community policing approach, philosophical, not not just assignment. Um, that's the only way to police. It does not work, because for years you had police departments were up here, and the community was over here, and you know it's our turf. Don't mess with us. We it's our thing. No, 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 no. That has to be together. Everything we do and everything we did was based on the community of Middletown.
0: How important is it for the chief of police to be visible in the public? Because when I first met you in 2019, mm-hmm. you were visible to the public. you were always out at events. You could mm-hmm. always be found at Middletown gatherings. Mm-hmm. How important for it is it for the chief of police to be visible in the community?
1: It's a hundred percent everything that you have to do. Um, people want to be heard and when they see you at events and they come up and talk to you and you're informal, you're not wearing a uniform, you're not wearing a suit, you're wearing shorts and a t-shirt. You're one of them at that point. And they'll come up and they'll burn your ear up about something going on Middletown. And that's good. You want that relationship where they feel like, Hey, I can come in anytime and talk to this guy. Um, I can tell you there was chiefs before me that didn't feel that way. The chief before me, Dave Van Arsdale, he was good about that. I mean, he would, you could go up and talk to him in public and everything like that. Other chiefs, maybe not so much. Um, Your your chief should be part of your community. And when I say that, they need to be out in the community, but they also need to let people be heard. It's not just about sitting behind a desk and saying, I'm the chief, you do this, you do that. Those days are over. You can't win like that. You can't.
0: Do you find that departments like the Minneapolis Police Department, is that divide caused by not being out in the community, by not interacting with those that they are accused of profiling or targeting? Mm -hmm.
1: You know, here's the thing. I can't speak for them because I don't know anything about Minneapolis other than they got serious issues. Um, But I can tell you that when you go to events as a chief or when you send people out, you know, to different events, they can't just be in one section of town. Um, Your people need to be involved in every, you need to be involved in the south and the east and the north and whatever. I think a lot of times city focus on where there's um, not a lot of problems. They'll do events in nice places like Java Johnny's right here where we're at. Um, you need to do them everywhere. You know, we would take, I would take four or five officers and we would go to every black church in Middletown. And they were so welcoming to us. And they were, and there was my, they were my people, as I call it, because this is kind of where I grew up. And we would go into these churches and the ministers and the, the congregation invite us in. And we would talk and we would let them ask us the hard questions and we would answer the hard questions without fail. When you do that, man, it just, it's transparent. It opens eyes. It makes you realize, look, they're listening to us. And sometimes we actually made changes based on their suggestions. So one of the questions I got asked by a guy in, in the back at Second Baptist Church, he reached out and he said, I got a question for you, chief. And I said, yes, sir. He said, how come you don't? You only have five or six black officers? I mean, our, our population, that was a good question. So what did I do? I turned to one of our officers who was black from Maysville, Kentucky, and he gave them the answer of why we didn't have a lot of black officers about how, how hard it was to recruit black officers. Cause he talked about, and his family, he was about disowned for becoming a police officer. And those kind of answers is what they were looking for. They want to know. And so we laid that out, how we're recruiting, what we're doing, to try to do better. And when that happens, I mean, you just, you gain community support and that's what you have to do all the time. It never ends. You know,
0: that kind of leads into my next question, which is how do we repair the relationship between police and the African American community.
1: You have to be involved. It's not about. It's not about going on social media and posting. We support you, or we're with you. You have to be involved, and you have to get in there, and you have to, you have to just talk to them and listen, and let people vent to you and speak. And there's so many little things, um, but you have to just be involved in your community. You can't, you can't achieve what you want to achieve behind a desk. You can't do it. And the chief is the most important person to do that because he's the most Visible and he's the leader, and and departments are a a microcosm of their chief, they really are, and they'll do what they'll follow the chief's lead, and that's what you need to do.
0: Talk a little bit about how you became chief of police. What was that process like? I read a little bit of that chapter, and the word you used when you found out that you were chief was shocked.
1: Yeah, you know I was shocked, and and I I there was a guy who had been there longer than me that really he's he was smarter than me. He was borderline genius. he wasn't a community guy like I am. I mean, he was a Middletown guy, but he'd been there a lot longer. I think he was a deputy chief when I was a patrolman. But um, when I got picked over him, I was I was shocked. I really thought he was going to get it because I know that there was people upstairs pushing for him. But the city manager at the time said, I need a community guy because things aren't good. I need somebody. To, and so that was me. When he told me, I just sat there kind of stunned. And he said council would approved it. And I left. I remember just driving around the city thinking – how did this happen? Because I mean, you know, at one point I was a little, I was a rug rat on these same streets with, you know, and I always joke cause I can joke about it. Cause I am a hillbilly. I was like, <laughs> I was one running around with no shirt and blue jeans on, on Hill street or on Crawford. I was like, how did I end up in this position? So it was kind of surreal to me. It didn't hit me until I got sworn in really with the chief stuff on and all that. That's when it really hit me. But I was also only 46 years old at the time, which is young for a chief. Most chiefs are in their fifties. And so I was young. But, um, you know, it was just it was a day I'll never forget. It was it was just I couldn't believe it happened to this to to this day. I still can't believe it happened.
0: Is there a motto or an idea or a certain mantra that you use as chief for the police officers? Like this is how we're going to approach every day to better the community.
1: We had I I always send out little stuff like that, little quotes and stuff. But I think the thing that I told them the most is never and and this doesn't do with the community, but it makes them a better officer. Is never take your work home with you. Um, this job is so mentally challenging. And when you take, take it home with you, and you know, in the book, I talk about one. the tagline of the book is, you know, the hardest part about being a police officer is trying to solve everybody's problems when you can't solve your own. And that's a fact. When you're a cop, you tend to take that home with you, those problems, and you fight with your wife, or you, you, you take it out on your family, or you're quiet, you're silent, you drink, different things. And and they're going to be a better police officer if they follow that. Don't take it home with you. Leave it here every day when you leave this office, this building, and go home and be a dad. And I also tell them, too, when people ask, tell me something about you. Cops tend to say, well, I'm a police officer. It should never be first. I'm a dad. I'm a grandparent. I'm a, you know, to me, family and, and your kids are the most important in your life. And... Don't ever say you're police officer first, because that's a job. You take that goes away, but your family never does. Right. So little stuff like that I always push family. We had events, you know, we took them all to Reds game. Kyle Schwarber, you know, helped getting his tickets, Tim Parks, who's awesome. They hooked up. everybody took their families. That that's the kind of stuff that stick with me more than calls or crime scenes, you know.
0: Is there one moment in your your career as police chief where you just sat back and was like, wow, I'm really blessed to be in this position right now.
1: Yeah, um, there's, been a, there's been a lot. I've, I felt blessed every day. I think just watching our, our staff, I think the, the the tough calls, the homicides or the, the deaths of children, those are the ones that stick to my mind, but I just watch them, how they perform under that pressure and under that emotional baggage that they carry with them, and they just kept pushing and pushing. I remember one time we had a some homicides and our detectives were there about 18 hours straight and they came right back, got three hours of sleep, came right back. And I took them all egg McMuffins. It was funny in the morning and uh, cause they were still there and just watching them work and fight through stuff and interview suspects after all. I mean, it's just, it, those are the moments that you don't forget. It's kind of like being the quarterback of a team and you look back and you look at your, you look back at your career and you see all these great things that happened. you remember the camaraderie more than you do, the actual incidents i just remember being with them and just trying to support them um but i know how hard they, they fought for the community and that's all you can ask for
0: how do police officers when they when they have a situation where they're covering a homicide or they're covering some sort of tragic event how do they get over that or how do they cope with what they just saw because that's not a one-time thing you're gonna mm-hmm. if you're a police officer many years you're gonna mm-hmm. see multiple homicides multiple mm-hmm um Mm -hmm. children being abused Mm -hmm. you know one um one incident that comes to mind was i was in dayton i was working in dayton when the oregon district shooting happened and watching the paramedics the firefighters the police officers there at the scene I, i was just thinking to myself how can they do that how can they be there and find nine dead people on the street how do officers cope in those kind of situations
1: the way that every officer copes different the you know you hear sense of humor yeah, very. People get mad because I've had people complain to me as a chief and said, "Well, I was, there was a dead body call and this officer was out in the yard and he was laughing about something." I'm like, "That's like how they cope. You can't explain it unless you have to deal with it every day." Um, but they, you know, we have police chaplains that would come and help you out and talk to you. We have EAP, which is counseling, which is confidential. That's how you cope. Um, a lot of times, officers just talk to each other. We would have debriefings after a bad incident and we'd meet in the squad room and everybody would just chat openly we shut the door and chat openly just us private conversation about you know how do you feel about this you have to talk it out and that's how they cope the officers that shut down after that are the ones who always struggle in the end you have to talk it out you have to tell what's on your mind and cops are type a personalities it's high testosterone and some of them don't want to do that so we encourage them to go to talk to a therapist or something and it's confidential nobody even know you went and talked to them city pays for it just go and um, but that's the best way to cope. But there is no particular one way to cope. Like I know when we had child homicides and we had kids that were killed or, or in, a, in a bad way, horrible. I mean, I coped just by and my cope was drinking. And I talk about that in the book as you go on. And that's not a good coping mechanism. But there was times I would just there was crime scenes or something like that would happen. I would just drink and go home and stress over it and wouldn't talk to my family about it. Because that's not what you do, you know. So it's just different ways to do it. It just depends on the officer.
0: You know, I I asked you already what a moment in your police chief career that made you feel blessed. What is your favorite thing about, or what was your favorite thing about being a police officer?
1: The camaraderie. Nothing tops it. And it's funny because people say, oh, the thin blue line. Well, that's not what the thin blue line means. Um, the thin blue line means you're the last, you're the protector between the bad guys and the good people. That's what that means. The camaraderie, the, the feeling of being in a car with somebody for eight hours, taking calls and solving problems and hitting drive throughs and eating bad food and just laughing and cutting up. And then literally having a blast for two hours. And in the next five minutes, you're going to do a man with a gun call. And knowing that that other officer, male or female, had your back, no matter what, it's the best feeling in the world. And you can't it's like, you know, I always say it's like the military. I was never in the military, but I have a lot of cops are in the military. And they said, that's exactly what it's like. You Having that camaraderie and you never forget that. You can see a guy you worked with. For example, I put this book out. There was guys I worked in a car with when I was 25 years old. And they were like 15 years older than me. And they called and I hadn't talked to these guys in probably 20 years. Some of them live in Florida or Texas or Tennessee, wherever. And they, would, they called me or Facebook messaged me and said, hey, call me. I called them and they just said, man, I loved it. I loved it. It, it, took, it took us back, and we picked up like we never left off. So the camaraderie was it was the best. I mean, to, even to the end, my last day as chief, the camaraderie was incredible.
0: You know, you talk a little bit in the book about how your mindset shifted in certain areas of policing when your daughter was born. Yeah. Um, what role did your family play when you were a police officer? Because I, I have experience. I'm the son of a police officer, yeah. so I know that feeling of, gosh, I hope my dad makes it home tonight. Yeah. What role did your family play as a police officer? My family
1: was huge. I know I say you don't take the work home. And I, when I say that, I, I didn't take home the hard stuff, the bad stuff. Um, my family was always involved with me as a police. They went to all the police events. They'd come to, they'd come to the office. I, you know, we had these, you know, the take your daughter to work day. We would do different things. They came to you know national night out. They were very involved in, in everything. And they were a part of the police department. And it's, it's not uncommon at all any day to walk in that police department and see a detective's kids and detect, you know, walking around and playing around on the, the computers and stuff. It's it's really, your your family is involved with you on that. And, um, you know, you have a, you know, your child's, when I had, my, my, my daughter was born, my um, youngest, the first person that came was my uh, 311 sergeant. His name's Scott Reeve. And Scott came, he was my boss at the time, and he came to the hospital his first <laughs> one. So it's kind of like you have... You have that uh, thing where everybody wants their, their kids involved. And as your kids get older, they quit coming in and stuff. But really, it's a family, it's, it's a family atmosphere inside there. Except the squad room, which is off limits, because that's, that's our sanctuary where nothing's sacred in the squad room. So, you know, but everything else is open for the most part.
0: So you leave as police chief. That was last year.
1: It, that was the end of 2019.
0: End of 2019. No. Uh, right before the pandemic started. Yeah. Since then, you have, been, you have been a real estate agent. What, uh-huh. What's that shift been like?
1: You know, it's still problem solving and it's just, it's weird. Cause there's no stress to me. It was funny. I had an agent tell me, they said, you know, you're going to do pretty well cause you know a lot of people cause real estate's all about contacts. And, um, he said, you know, a lot of people. And he said, you'll do well. He said, but you know, it's really hard. And I said, hard. So <laughs> Once I got into it, I started laughing. I said, no, I'll tell you what's hard. Having a SWAT commander call you at 11 o'clock at night saying, can we kick this door in? There's a guy near the gun. There may be kids in there. There may not be. Those are hard decisions. Trying to find out if somebody's got good credit to get a loan for a house is not hard. It's busy work, um, but um, it's been fun. It's it's flexible. I still talk to everybody. I've, I've I have clients that that I've arrested. I have clients that I know from police work. It's just funny um, yeah. because when you treat people right, I mean they'll still come back to you, you know. And but it's it's a whole different ball game than what I did before. But it's it's fun. I enjoy it.
0: Why did you leave? i'm just gonna ask you straight up why what happened that you were like you know I, I need a change in my life
1: well i started here's the thing everybody says how did you retire at 50 that's crazy i'm like because i started at 20 yeah. um, i was about 21 um you know i left because it was just time being the chief was great but it was mentally draining and as much as that job gave me it also took from me um i i just had to get out of there um at the end, I wasn't getting along with the city manager either. I was leaving anyway. We had a falling out, but I had already announced my retirement. Um, and it was this homelessness issue that we had a disagreement on. And he got fired shortly after I left by council. Um, but I just was like, I, I was on a cruise. And I tell you what it was. I was on a cruise and me and my wife and some friends. And I couldn't get cell service on the cruise. But I got my like Facebook messaging and all that. And everybody knew I was gone. The media knew I was gone. The department knew I was gone. The council knew I was gone. We had a homicide, and I started getting messages. After We know you're not here. You're on vacation. And I had an acting chief in place, but he still wouldn't quit. I probably got 20 messages. And I didn't respond to any of them. And I told my wife, I said, I'm not doing this anymore. I don't have to. We're good financially. And I said, I'm going to do something else. And I was at pension age, so I got a pension for life. So I'm like, you know, I'm going to do something else. And I went back within that week, and I told the city manager I was leaving at the end of the year. So I think that was it. I just hit my breaking point with it. And I hated it because the officers, you know, I it's funny because I talk about in the book that the funniest response I got to that was I had a dispatcher text me after I it got out to, to, that I was leaving. She said, and pardon my language, but she texted me. She said, you're a fucking asshole for leaving us. And I was like, what? Well, that's kind of harsh. How about a congrats on 30 years, you know? And she's like, I can't believe you're doing this to us. And I was like, you know, so I went up and talked to her and she kind of just laughed. And I was like, man, I'm... I always thought, hey, congratulations, good for you. I was like, you just cussed me out. Right. I'm still your chief, you know, And but I get it. It was all in fun, and that's the kind of relationship we all had.
0: You know, and I love that you said when you're on vacation, you don't respond. I I have a little bit of a funny story about you, and that's when I was working at Local 12. There was uh, – there was I forgot what was going on. I think it was like a dead body was found or something. Yeah. I don't know. And one of our reporters reached out to you, and you straight up said, I'm in the Bahamas. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think that might have been it.
0: Yeah, I think it was. Um, I think it was like a dead body on Verity or something like that. Yeah. and he just texts back,
1: "I'm on vacation. I'm in the Bahamas." <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, and I, and I always named an acting chief when I would leave. Yeah. So call this guy. You know, exactly. we put it out to the media, and everybody, but you know, I didn't go out at the media for that because a lot of them really don't did They really don't know when you're on. Va- they don't keep track of your hours or when you're gone. Yeah, they forget. I get that. But what bothered me more is people that in the city that knew I was gone, city manager or council would still reach out, and I'm like. You know, come on, man. I'm sitting here looking palm trees in the Caribbean. Can yeah, I? Yeah. Can I? I need this. You know. So, but it's a you know, there's a reason the average lifespan of a chief. When I say lifespan, his career span of the chief is under four years. There's a reason for that. The chiefs before me, I was there for five. The chief before me was there three. The one before him, there was two, and the one before him was there two. So you can look. I mean, I doubled that time pretty much. So it's just I think it just beats you down mentally over time. You're ready to leave. So
0: now, again, I guess we could say this, you will soon be filing officially to yeah. run mm-hmm. for Middletown City Council. Mm-hmm. What's your platform? What what do you stand for? Why what positions are you taking?
1: My whole platform is two, it's two things: positivity and transparency. This city needs both. Our city, Middletown's a city that loves to hate itself. I don't understand that. Um, everybody talks trash about Middletown, badmouths in Middletown. You go outside the city. I hear it from my friends in Mason and Westchester about, oh my God, Middletown. And I'm like, it's not like that. There's bad pockets, but every city has bad pockets, you know? And, uh, as far as the transparency, I think there's some things, um, going on in the city building that needs changed. I know that from the people that reach out to me in the city building that want change. Um, I don't know if I'm the guy to do it, but I know I can help. Um, I, I support council now. I don't agree with everything they do, but I won't run a negative campaign. I can tell you that I have a I have about 10 business owners that's working with me on all this to, to get moving that, that have basically said, we want to do whatever we can to help you win. And, and, you know, I'm blessed, man. I have a lot of support in the city. It's crazy. And, you know, it's because of the great things that Middletown has done for me. And um, my platform is just going to be doing it right. You know, council make key decisions. And in the past, the problem with Middletown is the city manager always seemed to set the tone for the city and council just approved everything. It's not the way it's supposed to be run. Council sets the direction for the city, and the manager follows that direction, not the other way around. I can tell you, the city manager before this one, I mean, he did great things with the city. He really did. I mean, he was the first few years, he was awesome. But by the end, I think he thought he was council's boss, not the other way around. I can, if you watch some videos of council meetings, you can see what I'm talking about. Um, but the guy was brilliant. Um, the current one, I met with him for lunch recently at the Swire Inn downtown, and we had a great conversation about things. And uh, I, I think that we could work together. We didn't agree on everything. We're not supposed to. But my goal is to get some things changed. And he changed it with positivity and transparency.
0: I love how you talk about the image of Middletown outside Middletown. Because before I start, started dating Heather, yeah. you know, my only image of Middletown was my great-grandmother used to live up here. Okay. She, and she died in 2008. So my image was like, there's nothing to do there. It's Ho Dunkville. It's, you know... And then I started dating Heather, and she's taking me to all these amazing places. Cool places. I, I love the jug. I yes. cannot get enough, enough yeah. of the jug. Here at Java Johnny's, you know, before the pandemic, we came here every yeah. Sunday morning before church. There's so many. This wire in. I just mm-hmm. went there for the first time mm-hmm. about a month ago. There are so many
1: oh cool things
0: about Middletown that people outside of Middletown don't know about.
1: There is, there's in the restaurants you named. I'm a big eater. You know, I'm 6'4", about 245 pounds. I'm not a little guy. And I don't do keto. <laughs> so, so um, you know, you look at even like uh, Bandana. It's a new Italian restaurant. And Monica Nenni, one of the council members, owns that. And, and West Central Wine, just fantastic places. Great Gracie's. Amy Vittori owns that. She's a council member. I mean, I would eat their meatloaf off a bathroom floor, man. I told her that one time. And she was like, would you? I said, it's, it's that good. Yeah. That's a joke. I really wouldn't do that. But, but there's so many good places. You know, Brent's Barbecue. I can sit and name restaurants all day. Middletown is known for their... There pop-up local restaurants. Combs Barbecue. My Combs, goodness. People, yeah. Miss Jade Soul Food. That's the kind of food I grew up on. It's, it's the newest one down here. you got to try it. I mean, my right. point is, is, there's so many cool places, and those are all food places, but there's so many cool places like that in Middletown that people just only in Middletown know of. So when I have my friends from out, like from Blue Ash or something, they're like, oh my gosh, I'm not coming there. I said, just come down for one evening, and I'll take you around some places, and you'll love it. I promise you. And we get a reputation that's not deserved. We really do.
0: I mean, you guys fought for me because I'm going to be moving to Middletown yeah. when Heather and I get married yeah. this summer. You guys finally have the last piece for me. And that's Chipotle. So, oh, yeah, it, it, <laughs> yeah,
1: it came. So, you know, it's, it's um, there's just so many cool places. We just need a Chick-fil-A and we'll be in, man. A Chick-fil-A and a Target. Yeah. Well, the Target, that could happen in the future. You yeah, know, it could happen. But uh, Chick-fil-A is to me. It's more important than the Target. <laughs> it's right. the well, best stuff ever.
0: Well, Rodney, thank you so much. I think this was a great conversation, very frank conversation, which is what I wanted to have with you. And I just thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate it. Um, I will be back after this with the Castle Mailbag segment, and I'll answer some of your questions. Welcome back to the Clayton Castle podcast. I really hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Rodney Muterspaw as much as I did. Um, it was an honor to interview him, and it was an honor to talk to him about some of the big issues going on in our world today when it comes to policing and race. It was a very important conversation that I knew had to be had. And I wanted to get a different perspective of a police officer. And a police chief who is no longer a police officer or a police chief or at least not actively and so i really wanted to talk to him and get him on and talk about his experiences with race in middletown and how that has affected the national narrative and so once again i want to thank rodney meerspaul for coming on and for talking to me and i was just so pleased with how that turned out we are now headed into the castle mailbag segment This is where you can ask me any question about politics, sports, horticulture, food, culture, Cincinnati, anything, just not birds, because I have a fear of birds, but anything. And we got a lot of good questions this week. So I want to start with my friend Nicole. She said, how do you stay motivated to create things for yourself when you work or have been feeling discouraged because of creative industries? What do you do to separate the two and to find joy? How do you stop work creative anxieties from spilling into personal creative outlets? Wow, that's a lot. Um, And it's a very good series of questions because that's something I've always struggled with is how to separate my work creativity from my personal creativity. Now, that's a tough question to answer for me as well because I'm currently not working. But when I was working in my last position, I worked really funky hours And I was just not motivated to do anything in my life, personal work, whatever. But one thing I will say is I eventually learned how to leave my work at the door so that I could focus on things in my personal life where there's personal creative projects like the podcast or maybe a blog that I may have started or anything like that. I was able to leave my work anxieties and my work creative anxieties at the door so that I could focus on other things in my life. It wasn't always like that. When I first got into the journalism business, I would, I would bring my work home with me. And there were some things that I had to cover in my journalism career that have literally sent me to counseling. In my last position, I got really good at just leaving things at the door and focusing on my life. And since I've been laid off, I've obviously had more time, not just more time, but more motivation to do these personal creative projects like this podcast while also looking for a job. I'm still on the job market and I'm still looking for that position, but I've learned to balance it. I've learned that I can't just spend all day applying for jobs or else I'm going to go crazy. I can't also spend a lot of time on my podcast because I need to be applying for jobs so you find a good balance and it's it's not easy. It takes practice. It's finding what works for you and what doesn't. It's a process of trial and error. And that's something that I've had to learn over years of being in the media and the journalism business. So that would be my answer to those questions. I really hope that that answered your question. If not, I sincerely apologize. Next question is from Eddie, my friend Eddie from Dayton. Well, actually, he's about to move to Cleveland. But Eddie, he says, does being up for something mean the same thing as being down for something? Also, if oranges are orange, why are limes not called greens? You know, that may be the most thought-provoking question I've ever gotten on this podcast. Not just on the podcast, in life in general. To answer your first question, does being up for something mean the same thing as being down for something? Of course, I've never, I've, I use those two interchangeably. Yeah, I'm up for that, or I'm down for that. So I guess it does, which makes no sense to me. That just blew my mind when you, when you asked me that. But yeah, they, they're pretty interchangeable, I guess. Also, if oranges are orange, why are limes not called greens? Because my guess is because limes can be rhymed with another word. Mimes, binds, like Amanda binds, signs. Whereas oranges, what can you rhyme with orange? I'm just throwing something out there. So Eddie, thank you for your beautiful contribution to the Clayton Castle podcast. My friend, my good friend, and my groomsman at my wedding, one of my groomsmen, Joe, asked, what is your favorite non-chain restaurant in Cincinnati and your go-to order there? So this is going to be a shout out to my favorite restaurant, which is Lucius Q. It's a barbecue joint in downtown Cincinnati, and it's owned by my former boss at WNKU, and still a good friend of mine, Aaron Sharp, who I hope to have on the podcast soon, because he also has a great story to tell, and I know a little bit about his journey, and I, again, one day hope to get him on the podcast, but after leaving WNKU, he opened this restaurant, Lucius Q in Pendleton, it's on the corner of, um, I'm going to get this wrong, 13th, no, 12th and Broadway, I believe and my go-to order there. Well, it's not so much anymore because I'm on Keto but when I'm not on Keto, it is a pulled pork sandwich with the hot Lucius uh, Lucius barbecue sauce and their mac and cheese is to die for it has um, It used to be cheese at crumbles. I don't know if they've changed that but the cheese the mac and cheese is so creamy and just so delicious And I can't get enough of that. Um, Well, I can now because I'm on keto. But I won't be on keto forever. And so I am so excited to not be on keto again and to go back to Lucius Q and to support Aaron and his business. My friend Ruth asked, would you like to learn to speak another language? Which one and why? So in school, between 7th and 12th grade, I took three different languages. I took one year of Latin, I took two years of French, and three years of Spanish. And I learned a lot in those, but I would not say I can speak any of those by any means. I think the one that I would love to learn is Spanish, just because of the um, the fact that that's going to be a very close second, no, no, it is the second biggest language in the United States now. And I would also want to be able to connect with more people, especially in the baseball world, because there are a lot of Hispanic and Latino players in baseball, and I would just love to learn their language and kind of learn more, not just the language, but the culture of different countries in that part of the world. So that would be my answer to that. And finally, my friend Parker says or asks, would you choose to be in either the Star Wars universe or the Marvel universe and why? That is so easy, Parker. Thank you for asking, but that's that's an easy question. Star Wars, all day, every day. I like Marvel. I haven't seen all the movies. I'm not like a diehard Marvel fan, like my fiance is and my brother is. Um, but I love the Star Wars movies. It's those one of those things where I cannot see a Star Wars movie for years, and watch it, sit down, watch it, and remember all the lines to it. I did that recently with Episode oh. There was a marathon of episodes one, two, and three, and I watched all three back to back to back, and almost knew every line, even though I have I hadn't seen those movies in probably a decade. So definitely the Star Wars universe, not the Marvel universe. Although Heather and I did watch WandaVision, and I thought I found that very interesting, and it kind of made me interested in watching the rest of the Marvel movies. So we will see if slash when that happens. So that's it for the castle mailbag segment, which means that is also it for this episode of the Clayton Castle podcast. I want to thank everyone who submitted questions for the mailbag segment. And again, I want to thank Rodney Muterspahl for being a part of this and for the honest conversation that we had. I really enjoyed it. I hope he enjoyed it as well. And I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And I will talk to you later. There will be an episode three. I'm excited for this next guest. And I'll see you soon.